Morning, everyone. We continue this morning uh, our journey through uh, Paul's letter to the Galatian church. And hopefully that reading that Megan did will have given you some idea of just how worked up Paul is about this topic. Um, You'll notice as we move through that many of the things that he talks about are repeated again and again throughout this uh, letter. And his sentences get more and more difficult to follow as he's trying to get out all of the things that he wants to say uh, as he's writing these things down. This morning we fast forward 14 years from where we were uh, last week in the point of Paul's ministry. And you might recall from last week that Paul's life was miraculously transformed by that encounter that he had with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was on his way there to persecute the believers um, and he had this encounter with Jesus that forever changed his life. He then spent three years in Damascus and Arabia and we presume that during that time uh, he had a lot of time for reflection. He was also busy during that time but he would have had time to reflect on the scriptures that he had Uh, at that time, which we know as as the Old Testament, and to read them in the light of uh, the risen Jesus. After this period, uh, 14 years elapses before Paul picks up the story again in this biographical account that he's writing in this part to the Galatians. He doesn't go into a lot of detail here about what happened during those 14 years. If you want to know the detail, you need to read the book of Acts, um, which records um, all of the trials and tribulations of that period. Uh, Paul wasn't sitting on his hands during these 14 years. He went to Syria and to Cilicia. Now, the capital of Cilicia was um, Tarsus. Now, that was Paul's hometown. He was very familiar with that place. So it was, it was familiar territory for him, but it was probably also quite difficult territory as he was returning back there a completely different person to the one that he had been. He then um, spends some time in the church in Antioch, and he went there at the request of Barnabas, who asked him to come down there, and they did some teaching in the area of Antioch, and the church there set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work that the Lord would call them to do. They travelled on to uh, Cilicia, which is not on the map, but it's somewhere around here, and then from there they set sail for Cyprus, Uh, visiting a couple of towns in Cyprus, then moving on to uh, Perga, uh, which is here, before moving into the region of Galatia and planting churches in city and Antioch. So there's two Antiochs uh, there. Um, The one down here that uh, Barnabas asked him to come to, and there's another one which is not on the map, but it's somewhere up there. Uh, and then moving on to Iconium, Lystra and Derby. And all the while, 
preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and great numbers of the Gentiles were receiving and accepting that gospel message and new churches were being planted and then strengthened as he visited them again. And in the midst of all of this great movement of the Holy Spirit, opposition arose towards Paul and his companions and at various times during this period they were threatened, they were run out of town and they were even stoned at the hands of unbelieving Jews and Gentiles. And so now with all of that experience, at least 14 years, uh, plus the original uh, three years that he spent before he went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter, he's now going back after all of this time, back to Jerusalem. And he's going there to see those who seem to be leaders in the church there. And the outcome of this little meeting would have far-reaching consequences, not just for Paul and for his ministry at the time, but for the future of Christianity and the shape of the church, even today. So this is a very important incident in the life of the early church. And I think Paul had a reasonable sense of just how important this meeting was. So he's going in response to a revelation and that's a pretty good indication that this is an important meeting. And he's also going there in order to make sure he was not running or had not run in vain. Now what on earth does he mean there? If you maybe read that last little part of that verse um, on its own, um, you could be forgiven for thinking that perhaps some element of doubt had crept into the Apostle Paul's mind. Perhaps he wasn't so sure anymore about this gospel message that he was preaching. And so he thought, I'd better get myself up to Jerusalem and confer with these other apostles and make sure that what I'm doing is right. But of course, we don't read the second part of that verse in isolation. And it's clear from the rest of the text that that was not what he meant at all. We're told that 14 years had elapsed. Now that is a long time to be preaching the same message if you're not sure about the truth of that message. Why would you wait 14 years to go up and speak to the apostles about it if you weren't sure? Surely you would have mentioned it in that first visit when he went up to see Peter after only three years. And if not then, then surely you would have gotten round to doing it at some stage before you spent 14 years risking your life for this gospel that maybe you're not quite so sure about. Neither does someone who is having doubts and is maybe open to changing their message depending on what the other apostles think, neither does someone like that effectively place a curse on themselves if they do decide to change their message. And that is exactly what Paul does in verse 8 of chapter 1 when he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. So what he's saying there is, if you hear a message 
that's different to the one that we originally preached to you, it doesn't matter who's bringing you that message, even if it's me myself bringing it to you, let that person be accursed. That's how sure he was of the message that he was bringing to them. The Apostle Paul has no doubts here about the message that he's preaching. He was absolutely certain of its truth and he had risked his life for it on probably several occasions, but at least one that we know of. What he does have doubts about is about just how effective that message will be if these itinerant teachers coming out of Judea are afforded any credibility. So remember what was happening here. These Judaizers are trying to undermine Paul and they're trying to undermine his message and they're claiming that the gospel on its own is not enough that believers must also adhere to the, the laws of Moses, including circumcision of their boys, dietary restrictions, keeping the Sabbath, and many, many other things. Now, these people are coming out of Judea. Jerusalem in Judea was home to the original apostles, and it was the birthplace of the church. So you can imagine that a message that's perceived to be coming out of Judea has a certain sense of weight behind it or authority behind it. If the apostles were tolerating these false teachers or worse still, if they were actually giving them some credibility or validating the message that they were bringing by themselves insisting on circumcision or all of these other requirements of the law, then it was going to become very hard for Paul in his ministry. These false teachers would simply cast him as some sort of Johnny-come-lately apostle who was preaching an easy version of the gospel, a gospel of grace alone. And if they could cast that as being out of step with the original apostles in Jerusalem, then it could be seen that maybe their, their message had some credibility. And the end result would be a church that was divided. The church in Jerusalem would effectively become a messianic subgroup of Judaism. And the church of the Gentiles would be constantly under pressure by the Jerusalem church to toe the line regarding these laws. Ultimately, the two groups would either have to go their separate ways, which Paul knew was never what God would have intended for his church, or they would have to capitulate to this false gospel for the sake of unity. And Paul knew that that was no gospel at all. So there's a lot at stake here. And hopefully you can see why this is such a big deal. The consequences of it would have been far-reaching. They would have reached to us here today. Instead of being one in Christ, we would have been two or three in Christ with different subgroups believing different Gospels. So this is probably the biggest deal that the church has ever faced 
We think that some of the issues that we are facing today are a big deal, but this one is probably the biggest thing that the church has ever faced. Even recalling all of this in this letter to the Galatians has got Paul agitated and that comes through in his writing style in this section. It's quite hard to follow. Um, in the Greek, there are many, many words um, and it is quite difficult to follow because it's almost like different ideas are popping into his head at different times and he wants to get them all down as quickly as he can. So Paul makes his way to Jerusalem and he takes with him Barnabas. Now Barnabas was a Jewish background believer. You might remember he was the one who had sold his land to provide for the brothers and sisters there. So he's a Jewish background believer who is well known in Jerusalem and who has a very good reputation in Jerusalem. He was known for his faith. But he also takes with him Titus. Now, Titus is exhibit A. Titus is a sample of the fruit from Paul's ministry. And Titus is without doubt the most important person who is going to this meeting. Titus was a Greek. He was a Gentile convert. He was not connected by birth in any way to the promises given to Abraham. He was not circumcised according to the laws of Moses. So Titus serves here as kind of a case study for every other Gentile believer who would come after him and for all of the Gentile believers who'd been made over that last 14 years that they'd been working in those various cities and towns. What the Jerusalem apostles required of Titus would shape the future of Christianity for the rest of history. So Paul and Barnabas and Titus go to these church leaders and Paul sets before them the gospel that he's been preaching among the Gentiles. Now as convinced as he was of the truth of the gospel that he preached and as committed as he was to it, Paul was still humble enough to recognise the authority of the Jerusalem church and its leaders and to make the trip there to communicate face to face with them. This is an important issue of church doctrine. And so he felt it was important enough that he make that effort to turn up and speak with them face to face. He doesn't go there demanding a public showdown. Instead, he seeks them out privately. And we have to wonder how many divisions in local churches could have been avoided had leaders been able to do the same, to seek out others privately, to communicate openly and respectfully any differences. Now, Paul and his companions were there because some false brothers had infiltrated the, the ranks of the believers and they were insisting that in order to be saved, Titus and every other Gentile convert must not only receive the free gift of salvation through faith in Christ, but must also submit 
to these Jewish rites and rituals. Effectively, they were trying to make those who were already free in Christ return to some form of slavery. It's kind of like meeting a former prisoner at the gates on the day that they're about to be released after having been granted a pardon and saying, look, sorry, there's been some mistake here. The pardon will stand, but only if you go back inside and work off your sentence. You can come out when we think you're good enough, then your pardon will take effect. A pardon isn't a pardon if you have to work for your freedom. And grace isn't grace if it comes with a whole lot of strings attached. The freedom that we have in Christ, it doesn't come with a whole lot of ifs and buts and whens. We're not free in Christ, but still subject to the demands of the law. We're not free in Christ if we do this or that or the other. And neither are we free in Christ only when we reach some minimum sort of moral standard. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, says Paul in chapter 5, verse 1 of this letter. Stand firm, he says, to the Galatian churches and do not let yourselves be burdened by the yoke of slavery. In Christ, we are free to rise above our sin. And we do people and the gospel a great disservice when we bind up that freedom in a whole lot of other requirements. We return to that yoke of slavery that Paul mentions there in that verse. And that is exactly what he is so distressed about, this binding up of the freedom that we have in Christ with a whole lot of extra conditions. Now, I don't think that anyone here today is suggesting that circumcision is a requirement for anybody's salvation. And I don't think anyone in any mainstream churches that I'm aware of is suggesting that today. But if the Judaizers had their way, every person would have to be a Jew first before they could be saved. Now that may not be our particular issue today. We may not be enforcing circumcision or, or dietary restrictions. But sometimes there are things that make people wonder about the gospel message. If you walk into a church, perhaps you might wonder, is there a certain dress code? Often we want all believers to vote in the same way. Or sometimes people feel like maybe they're not good enough because they don't have a job or they don't have the right sort of education, or that they're not welcome because maybe they're living together outside of marriage, 
or they need to be more polite or they've got a tattoo and they think maybe they shouldn't have a tattoo or a piercing. Maybe there is a, a pressure for them to leave their current group of friends before they can feel like they truly belong or that they need to get control of some sort of addiction that is affecting their life before they'll be good enough for Christ or that they need to first be in a regular routine of tithing or of Bible reading before they'll be good enough or acceptable to Christ or that they should express their faith in the same ways that we do and enjoy the same music that we do. Maybe they shouldn't drink or they shouldn't dance or whatever it is. There are often a whole lot of things and maybe we don't say those things to people but maybe it's a little bit like that lawyer in that movie, The Castle. It's kind of the vibe that often Christians give off to others that maybe there are a whole lot of things that you need to do first before you'll be welcome. Some of the very last words that God has left us in the Bible come in Revelation 22:17. The spirit and the bride say come. And let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. The Holy Spirit is convicting the world of our need for a saviour. His message is simply, come. And the bride, which is the church made up of all the believers, she's taking the gospel to the world and her message should be the same, simply, come. The message is come, just come. Not come when your life is sorted out, not come when you think your behaviour is a bit better or your marriage problems are resolved or you think you may be living up to whatever you perceive that the, the moral minimum of the church might be. Come with all your burdens, with all your issues, just as you are because no matter how much you try, you will never be good enough on your own. No one is ever good enough on their own and that's the whole point of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is exactly why he came and Jesus came with a very similar message come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, the rest that he describes there is rest for the souls. The weariness is not simply physical tiredness. That's not what he's talking about here. The burden is that weight of sin. And how do we break free from that burden? Well, this verse tells us that it is by yoking ourselves to Jesus. Salvation 
depends on him alone. We don't break free from that burden any other way. His message is the same message as the Holy Spirit, the same message that the church gives. It is simply come. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. You know, our our churches, I think, should be among the most diverse places on earth. They should be places where anyone who is thirsting after Jesus can come and receive the free gift of salvation. Instead, at times, they can often be places where people of a similar background, similar socioeconomic um, upbringing, similar level of education, similar political leanings, similar tastes in music, where those sort of people hang out together. But God has no favourites. That's what Paul is trying to say in a clunky sort of way in verse 6 when he says that God does not judge by external appearance. In the kingdom of God, all people are of equal value. Old, young, educated, uneducated, rich, poor, male, female, it doesn't matter. They are all of equal value. And if our churches don't reflect that, then we have to wonder, is the gospel message that we are preaching the gospel or is it the gospel and something else? Well, the good news from Paul's private audience with the Jerusalem leaders for Paul and for the Galatians and indeed for us today is that they did not compel Titus to be circumcised. And I'm sure Titus himself was pretty happy with that outcome. Neither did the Jerusalem apostles see fit to add anything to the gospel message being preached by Paul. Instead, Seeing that God was at work in the ministry of Paul to the Gentiles, just as he was in the ministry of Peter to the Jews, Peter, James and John extend the right hand of fellowship to Paul and to Barnabas and recognise them for what they are, co-workers in Christ. Now the Judaizers may have come from Jerusalem, but they were false brothers. And the message that they taught did not represent these Jerusalem apostles. Paul's gospel was in accord with that of the Jerusalem apostles and all of the apostles, the ones in Jerusalem and Paul, had held fast to the one gospel that had been revealed to all parties. The Judaizers were preaching a different gospel, which Paul said in chapter 1, verse 7, is no gospel at all. Neither the Apostle Paul nor the Jerusalem apostles invented the gospel that they were preaching. There is only one gospel, and it was God's idea. It was his way of freeing us from the burden of our sin. It was his plan It was conceived by him before the creation of the world and it was set into motion with the coming of Jesus. 
it was fulfilled in his death and resurrection. He didn't save us from the burden of sin only to burden us with a whole lot of other requirements. We're not saved from slavery to sin only to become slaves to something else. And Titus stands for us as proof of all of that. But the issue that Paul faced here with Titus was not so much circumcision per se. In chapter 5, he'll argue that in Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value at all. The only thing that counts is expressing faith through love. Whether one is circumcised or not is irrelevant today. And in fact, sometime after that meeting with Titus, Paul had another man of Greek descent, Timothy, circumcised. Now, on face value, after all that we've been through this morning, that seems like a kind of hypocritical thing to do. But the difference is in motivation. Motivation is important. In the case of Titus, circumcision was being demanded by the Judaizers as a requirement for his salvation. In the case of Timothy, it had nothing to do with salvation. It was done only that their work among the Jews might be more fruitful. In terms of salvation, there is only one requirement, faith in Jesus Christ. We are accepted by God because of what he has done, not because of anything we might do. And to require anything more than faith alone is to trade away that freedom of knowing that we are already saved in Christ and accepted by God. And it is to revert back to slavery. There is only one gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we must cling to it. We must stand firm in it. We must joyfully proclaim it to others. And we must do as Paul did. We must do everything we can to preserve and to protect the truth of that one gospel. Sarah's going to come and lead us now, and uh, I'm sure you can guess which song we're going to sing. Um, there is one gospel. <laughs> <laughs>